it's everyone's favorite season of fear and horror. But if you take care of your nerves, you can listen to this podcast as a psychotherapy session, because we are going to investigate your fears, explore their evolution, and most importantly, their reflection in films of the post-horror genre. To get to the bottom of the nightmare, we invited David Church, postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Gender Studies at Indiana University and author of the book called Post-Horror, Art, Genre and Cultural Elevation, which paperback edition is coming out in February. We continue to tell our readers about new trends in filmmaking and the concept of post-horror has appeared not a long time ago. But is it correct to call it an independent genre? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, some film critics did describe it as being a subgenre. Um, I tend to see it as just part of the larger genre. Um, I mean, you could make the case that you have art films over here and that's a particular mode rather than a genre. Because obviously the art film, you can have all sorts of, of genre examples within. You know, anybody can take sort of the art film approach to, to genre. And I think that's kind of what these films are doing. It's like an art film approach to an existing genre. Um, and of course, there's a long history of that going all the way back to, you know, the cabinet of Dr. Calgary back yeah. in 1920, right? Um, it's not like it's anything brand new that art films and horror films have been mixing together on a stylistic level. But I think what what is new or what seems new about these films is that um, a number of them came out uh, right around the same period of time, like around 2014, 2015, with films like uh, The Babadook, um, Get Out, uh, It Follows, The Witch, and so on. And so critics started to notice these films uh, coming out, this little cluster coming out all at once over a one or two year span. And they were trying to sort of like figure out, okay, is this a new genre unto itself? Is it a subgenre? Like what exactly do we call this new cluster of films? Um, and so one of the things I tried to do with this book was to say, well, okay, let's look at the longer history of art films and the longer history of the horror genre and see that, you know, some of these, these traits that we see going on in, in this sort of new wave of films is not necessarily new. We can find precedents for a lot of these things, themes around grief or um, things around gaslighting and so on in movies like uh, Rosemary's Baby or mm -hmm. Don't Look Now or you know, any number of art films from the past. But the fact that a number of these films were sort of like crossing over into multiplexes. That was another part of what made this seem like a new development because previously maybe some of these art horror films would only show at, at little, you know, art cinemas and they wouldn't get that, that much wide exposure. But this particular group of films started to cross over into, to regular movie theaters and started to get seen by a, a much wider range of people um, than, than, you might have had if they were just simply at little art houses. And so that, I think, was also driving the conversation because you had a lot of, of viewers who might consider themselves to be horror fans, but I would consider them to be a little more of like casual horror fans, like people who enjoy going to see horror movies mm -hmm. but are sort of expecting, you know, kind of some, some cliched elements like the jump scares and a lot of focus on the monster and things like that and not really expecting to go to a horror film and potentially feel bored uh, or feel like uh, disturbed or, or feel like um, this lingering sense of dread uh, that extends you know, throughout the film and even, you know, continues after the viewing experience. Um, Cause a lot of, of like a lot of post horror films or, or elevated horror films as they were also called 
Um, a lot of them are not really fun experiences or at least conventionally fun experiences to sit through. You sort of have to approach them like you would more of an art film, that kind of like contemplative mode. And so um, I think that that mix of like critical expectations versus more popular audience expectations and how those things didn't necessarily line up with each other. That was a big part of what was driving this, this question of you know, are these a new genre unto themselves that seems to be somehow not horror um, or is it simply a longer part of the horror tradition? If we talk about such films from the audience's point of view, what's the main difference for them between a mainstream horror and one that we classify as a post-horror? Uh, I think around that time, um, some of the earlier art films, again, they didn't necessarily get the wider exposure as far as crossing over. Um, but a lot of the ones that came out around 2015 seem to have kind of a slower and more detached style to them. They seem to have a lot more influence from like uh, global uh, slow cinema. So like a lot longer uh, uh, shot lengths and, and shot durations, uh, more sort of a cold uh, and, and almost kind of clinical approach to how horror was, was being depicted on screen. Um, so the monster was being downplayed a lot more and maybe seen only very indirectly and maybe more the focus on themes around grief and dread and, and explorations of the landscape and, and things of that nature. Things like family trauma as driving the horror film in maybe a somewhat more substantial way than what you might have seen in some of the films before that point in time. Yeah. So if you look at you know, some of the earliest films in this cycle, something like The Babadook uh, or, um, or uh, Good Night Mommy, those films are almost like, like flip sides of the same coin as far as looking at what happens when you have uh, some you know, deep family trauma where someone has, has died unexpectedly and then people are, are grieving improperly and the improper grief is driving uh, the, the creation of the monster. Like in Hereditary, um, right? Yeah, exactly. Hereditary yeah. is one that, that really sort of like encapsulates this yes. uh, in a big way. Many critics write about the rather clear differences between post-horror and what we used to understand as horror films, but no one has ever spoken about it as about something independent. So what's the difficulty in separating it? Yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty in, in doing so is I think it's, I think it was a lot of sort of high-minded film critics who wanted in some way to say, hey, we can claim these films as somehow not classic horror because they don't have the jump scares. They have you know, more, more supposedly smart ways of approaching the genre. Um, things that were seen as, as almost making these films safe for an audience who might not otherwise enjoy horror movies or film or viewers who might sort of otherwise look down their nose at horror movies as sort of a, a lowly and unsophisticated genre. A lot of these attempts at naming um, have a lot of elit elitism and, and snobbery built into them. So when people would describe them as, it, well, they're not horror, they're post-horror, or they're elevated horror, which of course suggests that you have horror somewhere down here below, yeah. <laughs> and we can somehow bring it up to this higher cultural standing mm -hmm. if we mix it with, you know, the kind of like family chamber drama or things like that, uh, or the kind of like, you know, Bergman-esque existential drama uh, that we might associate with kind of classic European art cinema. You know, some of the other names like like slow horror or smart horror that were applied at one period in time uh, before these, these terms like elevated horror and post-horror sort of became a little more 
commonly use, I think they all tell us something about the the critics' struggles to to somehow like make sense of these films, but also to try to say like here are some some smart ones for you um, that you can actually enjoy. And so a lot of that those efforts at trying to at least on critics' parts trying to like segregate them away from from the rest of the lowly horror genre uh, are things that then a lot of like really long time genre fans, people who who had um, tastes in like you know the high, low, and, and in between levels of the genre. A lot of those fans really pushed back on it and said, "Well, you know, the horror genre has always had you know intersections with art movies. It's always had a mix of you know really sophisticated films, but then maybe also really lowbrow films that are still managing to say something smart uh, or, or at least something meaningful about society." You know, part of this part of this debate around these films and whether they should or shouldn't be segregated away from the rest of the genre was driven by this this conflict between not just the reaction that sort of confused um, uh, kind of populist viewers had, you know, going to the movies and, and not expecting the kind of entertaining experience that they that they expected, but also this question of, of really like diehard genre fans pushing back against these mm-hmm. kind of elitist labels and saying like, no, the, the horror genre has always had value. You as film critics just haven't been, just haven't been looking hard enough to find the, the gems that are hidden in there because you're sort of reproducing this, this attitude that, well, only the the ones that can be taken seriously are the ones that are you know, that resemble more of like the traditional art film. Since no one has yet taken on the responsibility of singling out post horror as a separate genre, there are plenty of other terms. For example, slow horror, smart horror, indie one, prestige, and elevated. Should we take them all into account as complete units, or are they still part of something bigger? I mean, that's a good question, because one of the things I tried to do in the book was to say that there were particular reasons why film critics were grappling with all of these terms and always trying to add new little evaluative labels to horror, whether that be slow or smart or prestige or indie or whatever it was. What I think is, is interesting is that I think all of these terms are flawed, even elevated horror and post-horror. I mean, I use post-horror just as, as sort of a shorthand to say, you know, this whole body of films, which contains a lot of these stylistic traits. But I'm skeptical about whether we should use a term like post-horror in the way that it was originally used by a film critic like Steve Rose, who was, mm-hmm. again, trying to sort of segregate these films away from the rest of the genre and basically look down his nose at a lot of the rest of the genre. So I think there's value in looking at the the different types of labels that were used uh, and sort of like blended together over this two or three year period when people were trying to figure out what should we actually call these things? Because all of these attempts at trying to name or label the films tells us something about what these films might've been doing differently, what film critics were picking up on, uh, whether that be the influence from slow cinema uh, more broadly, which, you know, is generally not associated with genre movies. It's ten, you know, tends to be associated with more sort of like realist you know, movies about, um, you know, people struggling in industrial or post-industrial situations. Um, and, you know, we could look at a, a really, really recent post-horror film like Lamb as a good example of that. You know, it has very much a kind of slow horror, or excuse me, a sort of slow cinema mm-hmm. aesthetic to it. Um, and even has uh, Bella Tarr as one of the executive producers. So, it, you know, those sorts of things tell you about, like, some of the influences that film critics were trying to, to pick up on. Uh, but then also what might have been confusing to to other um, 
you know, horror viewers who might have seen the trailers for these movies and felt sort of sort of confused or frustrated when the trailers that a company like A24 puts out when they're distributing these films might not necessarily deliver all the scares that they're expecting. You know, if you're looking at the trailer for a movie like Hereditary, yeah, that movie is, is genuinely terrifying uh, in all sorts of ways. Whereas if you look at the trailer for, for Lamb, it makes it look like more of a horror film than it actually is in many respects, at least if you're going in expecting it to be a, a conventional sort of horror. In terms of horror, we are used to scary nuns, devils jumping out, and pleasant and expectable noises. There is a pattern with jump scares and screamers. But horror films of the at least last five years lean towards deep psychology and metaphors that frighten us. What can this be attributed to? Because the slashers, for example, were inspired by the waves of murders that kept America in fear in the 30s, but the psychological dramas and troubles that are the basis of modern films have always been there. Why do they get so much attention now? Yeah, that, that's a really good question and, and something that I actually didn't, you know, surprisingly didn't really talk about that much as far as the book. You know, I, I tried to sort of think about the themes in these post-horror films as having to do with you know, grief and dread and, and also some, you know, existential themes like the impending end of, of human life on earth, you know, in the, the Anthropocene, um, things like that, that I kind of touch on a little bit at the end. But yeah, a lot of the, the questions of like, are these films tapping into something political at this particular moment, like Trump era, uh, you know, concerns about the rise of fascism and things like that. Yeah, I didn't really go into those directions quite as much because it seemed like a lot of the films themselves were almost trying to sort of like touch on more timeless themes, you know, about like loss and family and, uh, you know, generational inheritance and, and things like that, uh, rather than kind of tying themselves really specifically to a given moment. Although there are definitely exceptions. So a movie like Get Out yeah, is obviously was, responding yeah. to the, the, the context of the Black Lives Matter and the, the movement for Black Lives, especially in the U.S. Um, so I don't want to say that all of them are somehow apolitical or somehow, you know, not tied to their given moment. I see it as almost sort of a sort of res a response to something going on maybe even more within the genre itself. So in the early 2000s, <clears throat> we had a lot of the critical discussion around uh, so-called torture porn films, Saw and Hostel and Turistas and films like that. And of course, those were read in a very, a very sort of politicized way as having to do with, you know, sort of American anxieties around uh, the war on terror, uh, American complicity with, you know, the use of, of terror or, you know, enhanced interrogation techniques as they were dubbed uh, in, you know, various wars in the Middle East and so on. A lot of the, the, the criticism of those films, though, was to what degree uh, are these films glorifying torture uh, and especially giving, you know, presenting torture as a, a something to be entertained by, especially for American audiences to be entertained by. You know, are they critiquing uh, the war on terror or are they simply reinforcing those anxieties? And I think what happens toward, toward sort of the end of the 2000s and, and on into the early part of this uh, a decade that just concluded is that we have a little bit of a, a shift away from the, the really sort of gory, overtly violent films like the torture porn films and a little more return to the kind of like restrained paranormal films. Uh, and Blumhouse has done a, a big job promoting those sorts of films, right? You know, the work of James Wan, you know, him having yes. started with films like Saw, but then making The Conjuring and Insidious and these sort of like 
almost kind of old-fashioned haunted house type movies that were seen by film critics as somewhat more respectable than his earlier work. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, they were sort of old-fashioned, but they did deliver a lot of jump scares for audiences. And eventually those sorts of things became a little, a little too copied. Um, so the jump scares and uh, those sort of Bloomhouse horror films became a, a little too, too popular, too often repeated in the genre. And so then we get this, I think, with post-horror, this shift back in the other direction, not necessarily to, to gore, but to various forms of approaching horror that are, are still restrained, but are not necessarily relying on the kind of old-fashioned haunted house tropes and jump scares and things like that. So it's like this constant seesawing back and forth between films that are seen as important because they're responding to the political moment, uh, or notable because they're responding to the political moment, like the torture porn films, versus films that are seen as more kind of critic-friendly, um, like some of the early Conjuring films. Um, the ones that are seen as like, hey, even if you don't really like horror films, you might appreciate these ones. Um, so this constant, like, constant, like, uh, sense of having to justify itself <laughs> in society's eyes that, that the horror genre uh, seems to have, that we don't tend to have to the same degree with, you know, uh, the, the drama as a genre, but the fact that we have the drama, especially the sort of family drama coming into, to, to intersect with the horror genre, with these post-horror films, that seems to be the thing that is allowing a lot of, of high-minded film critics to kind of say, well, okay, yet again, this is a, a different clump of films that you can feel good about watching if you don't otherwise want to associate yourself with uh, the, the more cliched aspects of, of horror films, whether that be gore, whether that be jump scares, whether that be anything else that's seen as sort of beneath the, the sophisticated viewer. And at this point, can we say that horror in itself is cyclical genre? So, um, for example, could we uh, finally get tired of all the psychological moves and simply go to the roots, like simple emotion of fear? Yeah, I think there's already been some, some internet chatter in that same direction, people saying, well, I'm tired of these post-horror <laughs> films, I just want jump scares back, or I just want to be, you know, I just want to be entertained, I don't want to go and, and wallow in somebody else's misery for two hours on screen, <laughs> right? Um, and some of the ways that we can see that, I think, are, are some of the older uh, properties that are, are being rebooted or remade right now. So, like, um, there's a, a planned reboot of uh, the Final Destination movies that's coming out pretty soon. And there's also a throwback to like the 90s era uh, slasher films. So like uh, the Fear Street trilogy on Netflix or um, uh, Amazon Prime's uh, new reboot of uh, uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer mm -hmm. uh, or um, uh, the new Scream movie that's coming out. Yes. So kind of like these, these nostalgia for a time when horror seems somewhat simpler and somewhat more entertaining seems to be coming back by way of a kind of nostalgia for the 90s. Uh, and obviously there are differences there, like uh, the recent remake of Candyman is also responding to, of course, a 90s movie, but is doing so in a, a very different and much more serious uh, vein. So, you know, I, I think there's always going to be, um, within these cycles, there are always going to be outliers, um, where there are still going to be some that do take themselves very seriously and have very you know um sophisticated things to say but then other horror films that are really going to be made for like the the popcorn audience yeah and and you know there's nothing wrong with that obviously the the new halloween movie for example was i thought you know perfectly terrible you know it certainly made lots of money so it tells you that there's an audience who really does want to 
to watch something that's pretty, you know, pretty expected genre pleasures. We have already touched on the main themes raised by horror films, but can we classify clear characteristics of them? Yeah, I mean, some of the, the general traits that I associate with these films, and, and <clears throat> I should say that even though I've, I've already mentioned that a lot of these films have themes like existential dread and trauma and, and grief and mourning, things like that, the thing that, that for me really makes post-horror what it is, is the stylistic approach to these themes. Because if you look at, you know, a long history of horror films, there have always been horror films that have talked about you know, grief and, and, you know, existential dread and things like that. But it's it's the way that these films stylistically approach uh, uh, those those themes that I think is, is what marks them off as somewhat different. So the sort of minimalism um, in terms of style, uh, the avoidance of jump scares, there may be a few here and there, but by and large, uh, the there's a lot more narrative ambiguity, um, more ambiguity that you would associate with things like the general kind of European-styled art film, for instance. So open endings as part of that, character motivations that are not quite as clear-cut, um, a different experience of time while you're watching it. So they might be much slower. Uh, the narrative might seem much more drawn out. Uh, and again, you don't have those little punctuation moments of, of jump scares that you might have to, yep. you, you know, if you're watching a more conventional horror film. Maybe more of a focus on the landscape is something that you see in some of them, not in all of them, but um, in some of them. Um, so focusing on space and sort of the, the small insignificance of the human as far as the, you know, where they're at in space, uh, which we can find in both rural examples like Lamb or urban examples like It Follows. And really, I, I feel like the, you know, the, kind of the, the minimalistic style, the, the slowness, the sparseness, the fact that there is almost a, a visual distance from uh, from what we're seeing in much the same way that there's almost a, a, a genre distance or distance from genre tropes um, as far as how these filmmakers are approaching the genre. That is, is something that I see going on. So it's, it's sort of a, in a sense that the filmmakers who are approaching a horror film with more of an art cinema mindset, they're almost reproducing on a textual level that sense of, of distance that they have from kind of conventional genre tropes. They're kind of visually creating that sense of distance uh, as well through the very style that they're using. If mainstream horror films like The Conjuring, for example, were made for us to squeeze into a chair and sleep with the lights on, what are the aims of modern horror films? They do seem to be, I think, wanting to use the horror genre as kind of a, a, a stepping stone to, to explore larger dramatic themes. Um, so if you look at a film like Midsommar, um, you have the basic folk horror elements there, and obviously a lot of influence from a film like The Wicker Man, um, obviously, as, as a skeleton for that project, then exploring these themes around grief and around gaslighting and things like that, and maybe making space for thinking about, in that particular film, sort of emotional abuse within, you know, romantic relationships. Um, and so the horror is sort of like lurking there in the background. It's, it's always there. You can always see something is, is happening uh, and know that something is very wrong. And obviously we feel with the main character that something is very wrong. She suspects that something, uh, it, it, you know, something dreadful is going to happen. And obviously that's informed by her uh, family losses, but it's also informed by what's going on with this sort of emotionally abusive boyfriend of hers. So, you know, those sorts of things where you have the, the horror as kind of a backdrop to then explore the family themes, 
uh, or more existential themes with a movie like uh, A Ghost Story or, or even like um, religious themes with a movie like Mother, uh, Darren Aronofsky's film. Um, these could all be um, ways that, that these filmmakers are in one way or another trying to sort of take the genre but decenter it from view a little bit, uh, view it with a little more of that, that sense of aesthetic distance and then use it to explore these, these seemingly more serious themes, or at least themes that we might associate with more respectable genres like the drama. There is a big difference between the old horrors and the modern ones in their atmosphere or suspense creation. Maybe we can mark the differences in the way horror was presented then and now. Yeah, I mean, I think the the post-horror films, the new horror films, do seem to have more sense of, of atmosphere. They're not as much driven by, by discrete narrative beats. Um, so they, for you as a viewer, you feel like you're kind of soaking in these atmospheres for a longer period of time. And so one of the ways that I describe that is that they're kind of powerful affective experiences, right? Like we maybe don't have particular characters or character actions that we can associate this, this feeling of dread with in this sort of emotionally directed way. We might have this more free-floating sense of affect where we feel uncomfortable watching the film, but we're not really sure why. Um, something just seems off. So a film like It Follows, you know, obviously we have this sense of like there's, yes, we know that there's a monster walking you know, constantly toward the protagonist. And we have this sort of, kind of conceit, which is obviously sort of inspired at least in part by the slasher film. And yet at the same time, it becomes a way of, of sort of soaking in these moods of, of dread and questions about trust and who do you trust and what sort of sexual ethics are involved in as far as like passing along this curse or not, um, you know, that sort of thing. So issues around sexual trust and, and rape culture and, and things of that nature become, you know, part of what that film is, I think, trying to touch on. You know, those sorts of things where you, you know, even when you come to the very end of the film, you might leave uh, uh, the theater feeling like, oh, I don't know where to go with these, the, these feelings. Like the, the monster might not be killed off, or maybe it is, but it's not killed off in quite the same definitive way that you might associate with a more conventional horror film. You might just have the, the kind of typical art cinema open ending where it just kind of like cuts to black, and then you're left having to figure out what exactly is going to happen next. And of course, you know, as with the longer history of art films, um, you know, lots of audiences uh, who might not necessarily, you know, want that sort of narrative ambiguity, they might <laughs> be rather disappointed by that sort of ending. Uh, so, like, as you mentioned with a film like It Comes at Night, the fact that there really is no monster in that film, uh, despite the way that it was first marketed. And so we end up with just this kind of claustrophobic family drama, and the, the post-apocalyptic stuff is all happening there in the backdrop with the disease that's never really explained to us. But it, it definitely doesn't deliver the sorts of thrills and the, the sense of, of closure and satisfaction that we might associate with, um, you know, a a post or with a, a, a post-apocalyptic film like I Am Legend or, or something like that. So something about that, the atmosphere of these films um, being almost troubling to viewers um, and then high-minded film critics saying, well, we can appreciate that these films are doing something sophisticated, um, even if then more populous mm -hmm. audiences might say like, like, oh, nothing happened in this movie. <laughs> Uh, so take a movie like Lamb, for example, um, and I'm not going to spoil the ending, obviously, for people who haven't seen it, but long, long periods of that movie, we're just watching two people on a farm 
just doing what they do, just yep. <laughs> you know, taking care of limbs and, and, you know, tending their house and, and things like that, and eventually tending the baby. Um, but, you know, it's not until the last act or so that um, some real complications start to set in. You know, those sorts of things could make it very difficult for a lot of viewers who are go coming in expecting something more, uh, more conventional. The main creator of post-horror movies is now undoubtedly Studio A24. But what's so special about their approach to the filmmaking process? Yeah, I mean, I think A24 has really made a kind of a brand name for themselves around post-horror um, because they're, they've been more willing to, to go into the festival circuit and really take chances on some of these younger filmmakers like Robert Eggers or Ari Aster and others and uh, really sort of promote their work uh, in such a way that where it's crossing over from... Uh, from the art house audience where those films might have previously only found a home and now they're coming into to multiplexes. So part of, I think what has made a 24 so successful as a brand um, is that they've been able to find particular, um, particular types of films that they want to distribute or particular films that they want to produce that all seem to have this minimalist vibe to them. Um, and you can see that applied to some of their other genre films, as, or not, not even genre films, but um, films like um, uh, Moonlight, for example. A24 obviously made uh, a big name for itself when Moonlight became you know, a, a Best Picture Oscar winner and, and still though has a very similar aesthetic to a lot of post-horror films, but is definitely in a very different genre uh, uh, category. So there's something about A24's kind of in-house style, uh, which tends to be very slow, very restrained, much more kind of drama-oriented, which affects a lot of their films, um, even in some of the ones that might be comedies, like um, Lady Bird. Zola's a little bit different, because that, that's a little more energetic, and, but you know, a lot of their stuff tends to have that, that sense of, like, of stylistic restraint um, that I think characterizes a lot of post-horror. And that's something that also sort of differentiates A24 from, say, a lot of the Blumhouse films, which have, of course, also become one of the big brand names in the world of horror over the last 10 years or so. For those who are tired of the frightening cliché, please share your personal recommendation for an encounter with post-horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for, for me, my, the, the film that really got me into it in the first place was It Follows. Um, that, I think, is a great starting point. Um, because as I mentioned before, it, it's sort of taking some of the slasher tropes from the 80s and 90s and doing something very different with them as far as gender and sexuality, which I think is, is really, for me, I thought really interesting. But also, like, there are, uh, there are films like, um, like A Dark Song, which I think haven't gotten quite as much credit. So yet another film with uh, a main character who's a woman grieving a lost child, but the whole narrative is, is built around uh, a sort of occult ritual uh, and not sort of like a, uh, kind of like spooky spiritualist occult ritual like we see in, in Hereditary, but rather like a you know high ceremonial magic tradition that, that basically takes takes up the whole narrative. So it's a film that sort of, it rewards a viewer who has some knowledge of occult practices, um, or at least actual occult practices, even if it's not necessarily um, taking the actual uh, Abramelin uh, procedure, which is kind of what it's based on loosely. It's not completely accurately <laughs> depicting that, but it's it's giving us, I think, a, a more nuanced uh, depiction of occult practices than what we would typically see in horror films, where it's just simply used as something that's 
you know, kind of a, a goofy little effect and, and just about conjuring demons and things like that. Here it's really approached in a much deeper and, and I think smarter way. So, um, you know, there are all sorts of films like that or, or even just, you know, films like Under the Skin uh, would be a good example of a film that's sort of post-horror, early post-horror, but also science fiction. And, you know, Netflix has done a, a pretty good job at putting some of these films out there also. So a film like um, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, mm-hmm. um, Oz Perkins' film, that's another one where you're taking sort of like the, the ghost story, but you are twisting it in such a way where it becomes sort of a meditation on time and generational inheritance and things like that. So, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways in to these movies um, beyond the obvious, uh, most obvious candidates like It Follows or The Witch or or Get Out, or, or films like that. Um, and I, I think it's going to be really interesting over the next few years just to see how far this trend is going to go. Like, is it going to be just sort of a decade-long cycle that's going to play itself out, or is this going to have a much longer tradition or a much longer staying power within the genre as we as we move ahead? And part of that might be a question of where companies like A24 end up going in the future. Are they going to keep doing what they've been doing over the last 10 years or are they going to change things up eventually I don't really know and what do you think we should expect from such films in five years for example where can it all go I mean again I think there there will be this and already is there already are signs of these returns to more sort of popcorn horror movies um, audiences who might be getting a little tired of the A24 style film and maybe feeling like You know, even if they've seen something like Lamb, like, oh, okay, I've, I've seen plenty of other A24 films that are sort of like this. Um, maybe feeling like that sort of thing is, is becoming played out or becoming almost a little cliched in its own right. You know, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether whether it's no longer companies like A24 who are putting out these sort of post-horror films. Maybe we'll start to see more influence in more mainstream uh, horror films, you know, major studio based films that are starting to take some of the post-horror style and incorporate them. That might be one place where where these sorts of, of, of undercurrents in the genre might start to, to meet up and, and sort of cross-pollinate again, um, but I'm not really sure. Um, it seems to be probably this, again, this kind of seesawing back and forth between visual restraint and then we'll probably have more gory films coming along uh, as well as something that you know audience, audiences want to see inevitably at some point in time. So whether we find some way of, of combining the, you know, some post-horror style with more gory stuff and, and doing it effectively, which, I mean, I guess Ari Aster has done a, a little bit with a few of his films, but uh, yeah, it'll be really interesting, I think, to see like where these like seesawing motions within the genre start to go, whether we're just going to go back in a more predictable direction or whether post-horror is going to have that staying power as something that's stylistically informing uh, the genre in a more mainstream way. I mean, it, it's always it's always shifting and changing. So, um, you know, I, it, it's one of my favorite genres just to focus on both the past and the future because we never know exactly where it's going to go next. And I'm sure there's going to be some other really interesting trend coming up, coming along, you know, besides post horror in the next five, ten years. And and so, you know, it's it's always something to look forward to. Well, we have to wait and see what scary tricks they use in five years. For now, you have a whole list of films to get familiar with a new world in horror movies, but be careful, they can be addictive and disturbing. Thank you for listening to this podcast and learning about post-horror with us. We'll be back in a month with something very engaging. 
In the meantime, remember to analyze, not criticize, and see the invisible.